You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, Morgan from the future here again. It's May 12th, 2021. We've recorded this episode in April, about three weeks ago. And since then, the science and policies are changing. And I wanted to flag that in this episode, we talk about the AstraZeneca vaccine and the clotting risks. In the episode, we use a rate of 1 in 250,000 for clot risk and relate that to some other events like risk of getting struck by lightning. Since then, the clot risk in Canada appears to have increased. Our evidence has changed, and we're now using a rate of around 1 in 100,000. And Ontario yesterday reported that they had a recent spike slightly higher than that. And several provinces have paused the use of AstraZeneca again. Rather than pulling down this whole episode, we left it up because I think it's still relevant, although you do have to factor in the change in the science. Are you excited about being closer to the end of this COVID tunnel? Are you encouraging people who are already acting like they're through the tunnel to follow the public health orders? Or are you seeing AstraZeneca vaccine hesitancy and thinking about how to talk to patients about it? Yeah, me too. This is Primary Care in a Pandemic. Hi, I'm Sarah, and I'm a medical anthropologist working at the University of British Columbia's Department of Family Practice. And I'm Morgan, a family doctor working in the inner city, and I'm faculty in the Department of Family Practice. We're both part of the Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or the ISU. In the last two weeks, a lot of things have happened. It feels like we're kind of in a continuously evolving space right now. There's been so many changes. Right? The, the numbers in BC continue to plateau. We're, you know, hitting over a thousand a day consistently. We're hearing a lot in the updates about increasing pressure on hospitals and frontline workers. A lot of our hospitals, particularly in the hot spots, are at kind of the 95% capacity rate right now or above. And I think we're getting a sense of very differential experiences based on where people are and, and where hotspots are across the province. Talking to colleagues who have got critical care experience and they're being asked to come in and come and work in the ICUs and emerge, even if they're family doctors and community. And at the same time, I'm seeing people protesting that masks are a, a violation and we should all go mask free all the time. It just, there's this disconnect for me as a healthcare provider. And the other disconnect for me is we're seeing all these people who are saying that we're going to go out to the beach, and yet we have a push to get vaccine out, and it's not it's going faster, it feels like it, but it's not. What's happening is we're having more vaccine hesitancy, so the age brackets have gone down. So last week, people 40 and, and above could apply to get the AstraZeneca vaccine, which is really exciting. But part of that's because people 50 and above haven't stepped up to get it. Right. You see by age bracket how people can be having really different kind of conversations around hesitancy as well. I think there, there seemed to be a lot more hesitancy from my perspective in the 55 to 65 age bracket. We finally hit the 40, 40 bracket, which is my circle of friends. And everyone I know is spending tons of time getting on wait lists and trying to secure your appointment and myself included. Yeah, feels like a bit like Ticketmaster. And you're trying to, you're trying to get, you're not trying to jump any queues, but there's just now there's several queues to get into and people are trying to get on those queues. So there's that group that's really jumping on it. And yet we're having to put out circuit breakers and putting out not checkpoints to, <laughs> to check people, to reduce the travel, to reduce the spread of the variants of concern. 
So it's interesting because in BC, we've had a very sort of everyone follow the, the good advice, make good decisions, a very non-directive approach to public health orders. And all of a sudden, things have reached such a point where on the one hand, people feel like it's coming to the end, the weather's getting nicer, the days are getting longer. On the other hand, we, we now have travel restrictions that are going to be by health authority. There's way more surveillance happening than there was mm. any, at any point prior in the pandemic. So I think it's an interesting time. Yeah, and it's that old sort of adage, the last mile of the marathon is the hardest part. Unfortunately, with this marathon, if we slip, it gets longer. Right. The race is now longer for us because of this third wave. And I think we heard really clearly that we're fighting to save the summer. If we can get things under control by the end of May, then we might be able to have decreased restrictions in July. And it's sometimes hard to imagine that that's the level of impact, excluding you know, the number of people who are sick, the number of people who are going to hospital and all that, but just like the people who are trying to do things right. It's just longer and longer. And that's really hard to hear, I think, for a lot of people. For this episode, I think we want to dive into a couple of things that we can do. First one, we're at the point where more people have a dose of vaccine, but not two. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that that's a really interesting place to be. I've, I got my first dose the day after the new guidelines were described that it was going to be a 16-week delay between first and second dose. And so people who got them a month before me got their second dose, but people who got them the day I got mine and, and since then are now going to wait for up to four months. It's, it's how are people coping with that, like, that sort of partial immunity? Well, and then if I look at myself, even though we have these conversations and I know that one dose is not a complete immunization, like in my head right now, it's all about that one dose. <laughs> and then, right. and even though I know in my intellectual brain, that that's not the end, I'm very much in that place myself. So I can only imagine how that'll be with the, the broader public. I realized that I don't actually have a good sense of how much immunity people get from one dose. And I'm watching my parents who've now had their first doses and they live in a kind of rural area, so they're not actually seeing that many people, but it has changed their perspective on where things are at and they think they're good now. But what do we know about the interval between doses and decreased immunity? It's a good question. I don't have all the science at, at the tip of my tongue, but I, so a couple answers to that. One is we know that for most vaccines, the actually the delay between the first and second dose, if it's longer, it's often better. A hep B, we actually do three doses and the third dose is at six months. So it's quite a ways away. It essentially gives a chance for the immune system to have had its response mature a little bit, and then we prime it again. So in theory, it could give us a, both a stronger and longer response. The reason we didn't test that with our current two-dose vaccines is purely a timing issue. Mm -hmm. It appears that, with, for good reason, the drug companies said, we want to test this in the shortest interval between two doses we can, because then we can get it out faster. If they said, we're going to test it one dose now and one dose in six months, we would still be waiting for the first vaccine trials to finish. So they shrunk it as tight as they thought they could to give the immune system enough time in that first three to four weeks to have enough of a response to then boost it with the second dose. I think it's a fair call to have extended it, but we don't have a lot of science to say how much better or worse 12 weeks is to 16 weeks. And BC went to 16. I know England went to 12. So I think it's a safe bet, but we don't know quite the answer yet. But the other thing that we're not clear on is that middle ground that I'm sitting in right now and your parents are and my mom is too, which is you've had a dose, you have a full response, I'm air quoting, 
<laughs> to the first dose, are you immune yet? Do you have a full immunity? We're not telling anybody to take their mask off. I, my behavior's really not changed much at all. But my anxiety level for my mom is lower because I know it's one layer more of protection. And I think that might be the best way to describe it, Sarah, mm -hmm. to people is it's, yes, good. I'm glad you have it. You're more protected than you were three weeks ago. And it's just one extra layer, right? So there's three layers in your mask and one layer, additional layer, which is the vaccine. But when we have these rampant numbers, there's still a good risk of getting COVID. So I think that clear messaging about the idea of another layer of protection, that makes a lot of sense to me. And I think getting that out in the public is going to be really important in the next kind of couple of weeks, especially. I think so. I think it's really trying to, it's, we're not done, right? We still have more to do and we, and we need to keep going with what we're doing. I, I did a little bonus episode last week, right before I was going to start seeing patients. And I thought I better, I could share this one. It was really not so much about talking about what you're not doing, but it was encouraging people to continue to do more of what they are. And it's just a bit of a reframing. And I think getting people to do what they're doing and doing it a bit more and for longer, not to quite let their guard down, I think is really important. So this idea of reframing, I think, also flows into our next idea that we wanted to talk about today, which is how to reframe AstraZeneca to decrease hesitancy. I think, you know, there, there was a lot of early messaging that came out, recognizing, again, the, the shortened time frame that all of the sort of vaccine testing was happening in. We got all these messages about AstraZeneca having a lower efficacy than Pfizer. I know in the UK, there was this idea of the posh vaccine being being yeah. Pfizer and then AstraZeneca being the vaccine for the people sort of thing. And I realized for me, when the age back has dropped to 40, I was very excited. And then I had a moment of, oh, but do I want AstraZeneca? And I, and I know all this. And then of course I do. Also, my phone was broken. I missed the 48 hour <laughs> window for signing up for stuff. So now I'm in the place of of almost chasing vaccines. I actually went to the pharmacy last night at like 6.30 just to see if they had any leftover doses because I heard that's a good way to learn. Yeah, thoughts crossed my mind to just check in. People are definitely doing that. So the hesitancy is different with AstraZeneca. We've worked with our COVID toolkit and we've worked with a bunch of people across Canada who are really involved in COVID vaccine, COVID monitoring, etc. And I get to see them on CBC, which is fun. Lots of talk about all this flux of the AstraZeneca. And is it safe? Is it not safe? How unsafe is it? What does that compare to? And one person made a comment, which I thought was really interesting, is that when in recent history do we know what brand of vaccine we've received? Even as a physician, I, I always have to look at the bottle to see, and so I, just to write it down, but I, I barely remember which brand of which I gave to somebody. But right now it's completely in, in the public eye. And there are these different categories and people feel one is better than the other and the numbers are there, but you can't compare them, but let's put them all on the screen at the same time. We have to explain to people, the numbers don't matter, but they do because you've seen them. But the difference is that the AstraZeneca in large part was, was done in a different time in this pandemic. The study was done in a different location, different locations, plural. And the variants were there and we didn't know that they were there and we weren't testing properly for them really. So we don't know how much the, that change in number was due to variant. And what we do know today is how effective AstraZeneca is in the UK, which is a much larger natural experiment in terms of numbers. And it appears to be just as effective in all the big things. So mortality, keeping you out of hospital, etc. There doesn't appear to be any big difference between the two. 
And then I think just when that messaging started to come out, there was the whole clot situation. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so let's put it into perspective, right? So we've been running around talking about this and the numbers that I have are one in a quarter million for the risk of a clot from AstraZeneca, which means if we vaccinated everyone in BC, everyone, whether they're eligible or not, just to take the raw numbers. <laughs> including Sarah, children, like including the whole kids. population. Yeah. yeah, including those who've already had a vaccine dose of another kind, the whole population. We have about 20 cases of clot. And it's treatable, right? Yeah, so it's serious. And, and this is a different kind of clot than what you might get from a birth control pill. It's a different kind of clot. And they can occur in different locations in the body. So that's really important for people to know. And if people are getting the vaccine, to inform them. In fact, that was one of the questions my wife had when she signed up. She was super excited, tears in her eyes when she got her appointment. And the next thing was, I'm going to get it, but what are the symptoms? So we went through them all. There's a different mechanism here. So we, we just need to let patients know that it is more serious because some of the locations of the clots are not the legs, which is a typical place we, people will get a clot. It can be directly in the lungs, it can be in the brain, it can be in the heart, and it can be in your abdominal cavity. So you can get weird symptoms that aren't what you would traditionally have heard about as a clot and a swelling in your leg, right? It can cause a, a really big headache. And then that's the sign that you might have a clot in your brain. It can cause chest pain, shortness of breath, abdominal pain, those things people have to know about. And the last one is bruising. So unusual bruising in the first two weeks after the vaccine dose. But it's such a small risk. By comparison, I know you had some fun with the math. I, I had fun. I had fun doing some numbers. <laughs> Back of the napkin, by comparison, the risk of getting COVID in BC yesterday, just yesterday, was 49 times higher than the risk of getting a clot. Right. So the risk of catching COVID over the weekend is 100 times greater than the risk of getting a clot. So if you just waited two days, you said, oh, I'm going to think about this for the weekend, and you were at average risk for getting COVID, your risk of getting COVID is way, way higher just by a two-day delay than it is of getting a clot. You have the same, the risk of dying from COVID that you contracted over those two days. As a super healthy like person with no conditions and yeah. Is not far off the risk of getting a clot over just over those two days. So if you wait, I'm going to wait for the, the posh vaccine. Right. And, and I'm going to wait two to three months. The math, the math suddenly makes no sense. Like the numbers are so high that if we continue at this pace, which hopefully we won't, every day you wait right now is just making those numbers worse and worse. So I think there's really a role here for you know, really clear communication about what those yeah. risks are, answering people's questions, and really getting that message out there that vaccination is what's going to give you that extra layer of protection that's going to help, especially right now with the numbers being so high. I got one more. So as a provider, I always look for those comparator numbers. One in 250,000, blah, blah, blah. It's just, you don't know what it is. But the risk of getting struck by lightning, Sarah, mm -hmm. the annual risk of being struck by lightning, not in your lifetime, over the course of a year in, in the course of a year in Canada, is greater than a clot. All right. <laughs> there, you sold me. I'm, yeah. I'm ready. Yeah. According to the numbers today, the numbers are shifting a little bit. And I've heard that a little bit higher, a little bit lower, but just that those are good things to compare to. Yeah. Chance of getting struck by lightning, slightly higher. Still need to be, be aware of it. Still need to know if you've got those symptoms. Let somebody know right away and we'll check. But I think when we talk about risk and benefit, the risk of waiting doesn't make sense, especially, and all we've talked about is COVID. Right. We haven't talked about None the mental the health, the economic, 
the spreading it to somebody else, because all those things are improved. Just because I get COVID, it's not just about me, it's about the people around me too. So there's all those things to think about. So I hope we've got some good ideas today about kind of ways to support your patients and your kind of fellow, fellow providers when we think about how are we going to get through what Morgan, you said was like the end of the marathon, right? We keep hearing that marathon metaphor. I want a different metaphor. I don't want to use the tunnel either. I don't like the tunnel one because it implies there's a train about to hit us, but we needed something else. But we're getting close, it feels like. So how can we kind of encourage continued adherence to public health measures and that idea of really focusing on what people are doing and encouraging more of of the, the great behavior that a lot of people have been doing for so long now to really help get us through the end of this? I think you're right. I think it's at this stage, we didn't talk about variants of concern and we probably will next time. In this context, we need to get people doing just a bit more without burning out. I think there's that real risk for all of us in healthcare and not that we're, you know, we're going to fall off completely. So instead of really hammering some of it, let's think about that, that harm reduction approach, encourage people to do what works for them and to just do a bit more for just a bit longer. Early on, Sarah, for us, we talked about time boxing. Can you just do that for two weeks? In BC, we have the May long weekend. I think it's reasonable to use that to our advantage and talk in that kind of frame. Between now and the May long weekend, what can we do to really push these curves down? And I think encouraging people to do fun things that are safe. We can go for a walk outside. We live in a beautiful place. There's so many things that, that you can do outside right now. And I think the social connections are important, keeping that going, taking advantage of the change in seasons. Yeah, I I agree. I think uh, there's also going to be a lot more availability for some of those activities if we're reducing travel. Mm -hmm. So that's an advantage that you can promote to patients. And then the last thing is to be ready to answer questions and to talk about hesitancy, particularly, I think, in this week and these next couple of weeks around AstraZeneca. Because it's on people's minds if it's not on their tongues. And so it's important to raise that for people who are in the age groups that are now eligible. And again, just to comment on the relative risk and and the relative benefit. And hopefully that'll help move us closer to that goal of population immunity. So the summer is going to be more normal and the fall will be more normal. Great. Thank you for joining us. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yes. Thanks, everybody. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 